This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley. Paul Rubens, the character actor and comic who created and embodied the charmingly childish character of Pee Wee Herman, died of cancer Sunday at age 70. On today's show, we remember Rubens and Pee Wee by listening back to interviews with him and some of the cast members of his hit children's TV series, Pee Wee's Playhouse. Hey, Pee Wee, do you know what time it is? Um, it's fun time! It's fun time! Paul Rubens was an early member of the Groundlings, the L.A. improv comedy troupe, whose members also included Phil Hartman, Will Ferrell, and Kristen Wiig. He introduced his Pee Wee Herman character in 1977 and mounted a full-length onstage showcase, The Pee Wee Herman Show, that was captured as an HBO special in 1981. Rubens starred as Pinocchio in a wonderful episode of Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater, then got his big break in 1985 by teaming with young director Tim Burton on a movie called Pee Wee's Big Adventure which presented Pee-wee in all his childlike glory. Whether he was playing with toys, riding his bike, or trading insults with a neighborhood bully, played by Mark Holton. Morning, Pee-wee. Well, Francis. Today is my birthday, and my father said I can have anything I want. Good for you and your father. So guess what I want? A new brain. No, your bike. <laughs> What's so funny, Pee-wee? It's not for sale, Francis. My father says everything's negotiable, Pee-wee. I wouldn't sell my bike for all the money in the world. Not for a hundred billion million trillion dollars. Then you're crazy. I know you are, but what am I? You're a nerd. I know you are, but what am I? You're an idiot. I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are. A year later, Rubens was on Saturday morning television as the host of a gloriously imaginative series called Pee Wee's Playhouse. It ran for five seasons and was set in a world populated by a talking chair, talking windows, small dinosaurs who lived in a mouse hole, dancing ice cubes in the freezer, and a puppet jazz band. There was a genie, a disembodied head, who granted wishes, and a robot who printed out the day's secret word. And any time anyone unknowingly said that secret word, everyone else, including viewers at home, were supposed to yell real loud. In addition to the puppets, talking props, and cartoons, there were human co-stars, too, including Jimmy Smits, who played a robot repairman, and Natasha Leone, now of the Peacock series Poker Face, who was a regular Playhouse visitor at age six, playing an inquisitive kid named Opal. Now, first thing, I'm going to put some butter in my frying pan. So the bread doesn't stick to the pan. Why? Because if it does, then the bread will burn. Why? Because we want the cheese to melt. Why? Because we're making grilled cheese sandwiches. Why? Because we're hungry. Why? Because. Because why? Because that's why. 
Other regulars on Pee-wee's Playhouse included S. Apatha Merkerson, later of TV's Law and & Order, and Lawrence Fishburne, Orpheus in the Matrix movies. We'll hear from them later in the show. But first, let's listen back to an interview Paul Rubens recorded with Terry Gross in 2004, when Pee-wee's Playhouse had just been released as a DVD box set. So let's start at the very beginning of the birth of Pee-wee Herman. How did you first create the character? I think this was back in the Groundlings era when you were working with that improv comedy group. Yeah, it was, uh, I believe, 1977. Um, I was three, and uh, <laughs> we were doing a, um, a, a night where we were kind of doing an extended scene, what we called an extended scene, and we were trying to do something where it was like a comedy club, like uh, like the comedy store or the improv. Um, and uh, we were all supposed to be different characters that you might see in a comedy club. So I decided to be the guy at the comedy club that everybody would like immediately know this guy was never going to make it as a comic. And part of it was because I couldn't remember jokes in real life. I couldn't remember the punchline or I'd get halfway through the joke and I was always the guy who'd be like, oh, oh, wait, no, I forgot to tell you this part, you know. <laughs> so that's and, – and that character just sort of came out uh, that <laughs> night. I mean uh, I borrowed a suit from the director of the Groundlings, uh, Gary Austin. I borrowed his suit, which had been made for him by a guy named Mr. J, if he's out there listening. And – um uh, somebody else gave me a little tiny bow tie. Um, I had a, a little little one-inch-long uh, harmonica that said Pee-wee on it. And I knew a kid uh, whose last name was Herman. And Pee-wee Herman sounded like the kind of name you would never make up. It sounded like, you know, a totally real name, like, made by somebody whose parents were, you know, didn't really care about them. <laughs> so, so did you make up intentionally bad jokes? You know, I don't think I even had jokes at the time. I think, like, basically I had a paper bag full of um, toys, and I would bring them out and just go like, ah, hmm, ah. And, uh, you know, it was really sort of kind of a pathetic kind of act. It, I, I I didn't do jokes for many, many years, and then I I finally, I think the first time I ever told a joke as Pee Wee was on David Letterman's show, and I, I used to have... Uh, I I loved really long jokes, so it was a it was like a story that was a joke, and then I would halfway through go like, oh, I forgot this part, and I'd have to go back, and it was just a big long, um, long long joke. Where fortunately for me, it was a really funny punchline. So just when you were listening to it, going, oh my god, if this doesn't like, if this isn't over in thirty seconds, I'm going to shoot myself. There would be a, a really funny punchline, and it would all be okay. So how did this really bad comic, Pee-wee Herman, develop into the kid show host, Pee-wee Herman? Um, you know, I'm not sure there was much development involved. I mean, I, I, that character got such a great response on the first night that it ever appeared that I very quickly realized, like, this is something to pursue. So I, um, I did pursue that character, and, uh... In the Groundlings review, I had about maybe a 10-minute slot as Pee-wee Herman, so I had about 10 minutes worth of here's my toys, and I threw Tootsie Rolls at people in the audience, and uh, about, um, I don't know, a year after I was doing it in the Groundlings review, I uh, 
was flown to New York to be one of the finalists for Saturday Night Live, the year that the original, the last original cast member was gone. It was the first year of an all-new cast. It was the Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo year, and uh, it was the first and only year that uh, Lauren Michaels didn't produce. And I was one of 22 finalists all across the country, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and L.A., and I flew to New York, and with all my characters, I had, like, my fat suit. I had a, a fat guy character and all my props and wigs. And uh, and I walked in, and I realized almost immediately I wasn't going to get it. Somebody pulled me aside and said, that guy over there is the producer's best friend. And it was somebody who did get on the show, whose name I won't mention, um, who was very similar. I mean, we were both kind of like nerdy, dorky guys. So I knew it wasn't going to be both of us. And uh, Pee Wee Herman, the Pee Wee Herman show actually developed completely out of spite that I didn't get Saturday Night Live. I was so upset. <laughs> and people, I, I literally was thinking to myself, I'm going to go from this like, up-and-comer guy to, like, you know, the guy sitting out in front of Rite Aid, like, you know, tucking <laughs> on your pant leg, going, like, you know, can you help me out? Um, without ever having, you know, anything going. So before I even went home, I landed in Los Angeles and called my parents and borrowed some money from them. And probably within two weeks, I had uh, 60 people working for me for free. And we... Uh, produce that show. So, well, let's talk about the creation of the Saturday morning version of, um, of Pee-wee's Playhouse. Okay. Let's start with your voice, since you're speaking to us on the radio. Obviously, you, you didn't use your regular voice for the character of Pee-wee. How did you arrive at that, that kind of high and laughy voice that you created? You know, I had been doing, um, uh, years before the creation of Pee-wee Herman, I was, uh, I worked at a theater that was the uh, State Theater of Florida called the Oslo Theater, which is was in my hometown, Sarasota, Florida, and um, was based at the uh, John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art, um, which Sarasota, as you may or may not know, was the former headquarters of the winter headquarters of the Ringling Brothers Circus, so there's a lot of Ringling influence there. And um, I had uh, been doing Life with Father in repertory, <clears throat> with a bunch of other shows. And my character, I was the second oldest son, not the star son, but the second banana son. And over a three-month period, uh, and I'm not bragging about this, this probably wasn't a good thing, but my character developed into this total cartoon character. And uh, I didn't really even realize it, but you know, three months down the line, somebody said, wow, do you remember what you were originally doing and what you're doing now? And I was like, wow, that's, it is really different. So the voice came from that. That, uh, that, that, that is Pee-wee's voice. It was from, you know, good morning, mother, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that became Pee-wee's voice. So f- <laughs> I love that story. So from doing, <laughs> so from doing theater, you developed the voice for, for Pee-wee? Yep. You sound incredulous. Well, it sounds like it must have been pretty cartoony by the time it was done. It was. It was pretty cartoony. How did that happen? Did you not like the play? You know, I don't know. No, I loved the play. I thought it was a really great play. I think I just wasn't very professional. I was an idiot. (laughs) I I really didn't, I didn't know what, you know, I didn't know you weren't supposed to like change it completely into a cartoon. It was, it was uh, unwitting, unwittingly 
I did it unwittingly, Terry. Now, the way you, you look this Pee Wee Herman, uh, with your hair slicked back and the face makeup with the rouge and a little bit of lipstick, reminded me almost of like a silent film star, like a really nerdy version of a silent film star. There was something almost, you know, like Valentino with the slicked back hair, and I always assumed that those guys wore like a little lipstick and, and rouge too, you know, in the, in the black and white movies. Um, were you thinking about that as well, visually? I feel like I was back. I was around back then. <laughs> um, you know, I was a big fan of um, a bunch of people, but not real. I, I, whatever happened, I think must have been kind of subliminal with me because I never really. Once Pee Wee Herman was successful and people knew Pee Wee Herman, then people wrote. Uh, Quite often, you know, Eddie Cantor or... Um, right, right. Uh, who was the other person? Like some of the... Like Harold Lloyd, some of the, the silent mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. people you're talking about. E- even Pinky Lee, who I had seen as a kid, but I I mean... And Jerry Lewis, um, who... If you're listening, Jerry, I know you're not a silent star. Um, but I don't... I, I'm sure that all those all those elements had some sort of play on it but I I never really tried to like look like anybody in particular and the makeup really was kind of like I just didn't I didn't have a makeup artist I mean I did it myself so it it was I wasn't really trying to look like I had lipstick or rouge on I was just like I didn't know how to do it <laughs> No your 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 body I love that story too <laughs> <laughs> As as Pee Wee Herman, your your body was just uh, like really um, kind of tight and a little jerky, and you would always be like leaning to one side, or your head would be you know angled at one side. You'd often like stick your tongue out if you were concentrating in the way that kids often do. Um, was there a particular like kid you modeled yourself on as Pee Wee? No, there there really wasn't. I think it was just a blend of lots of people I knew and kind of like a lot of who I really was down deep somewhere i think how deep (laughs) (laughs) not that deep can we talk a little bit about the look of peewee's playhouse it 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 was just such a fantastic set of images you know bright colors um all kinds of like shapes and everything was alive in it you know like the chair had arms that could embrace the person sitting in it and the chair talked and the window talked um who how was the look designed and were you a part of that were you taking some kind of psychedelic drug when you watched that show? No, I'm just kidding, Terry. Um, the look of the show really had a, a lot to do with uh, uh, an artist named Gary Panter, who designed the original uh, stage version of it um, and designed much of the was the, was really the the overall production designer uh, and created the look of the show. Um, the television version of it. He was somebody who, um, when I was really creating that character in the early days of Pee Wee Herman, was kind of like the punk scene in Los Angeles. And he was kind of one of the premier, like, uh, punk artists. And I had seen a lot of his work. He was in a publication called the L.A. Weekly. And in Royal uh, Magazine that Art Spiegelman <clears throat> edited. Exactly. Um, and I'd seen a lot of his work, and I loved his work. And I contacted him and asked him if he would do a poster for a show that I hadn't created yet. And he said, well, why don't I do the poster? And Well, actually, he said, let me come down and see what, what it is. So 
he came down and saw me in the Groundlings show where I had my little 10-minute peewee thing and uh, came backstage and said, I'd love to do it, um, but why don't I do the whole thing? Why don't I design the sets and the puppets and everything? And I said, yeah, great. So he designed that, and then when we uh, got the deal with CBS a few years later to do it as a real television series... He came on board. He was the first person I hired and said, you know, you gotta, you got to do this set. So it was, uh, I mean, the rest is history, I guess. But, it, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably the most amazing aspect of the show, in my opinion, is, is the design of it. It was just so, so startlingly incredible, in my opinion. Now, you've said that one of the things you really loved about the character of Pee Wee Herman was that he showed that it was okay to be different. What did you feel was most different about you when you were growing up? Um, you know, I guess I felt like a total oddball all the like almost every minute of growing up, so it'd be hard to kind of isolate that. But um, I mean, I think that sort of was the whole point of of the show, or at least a big point of the show, was that like you know it would be hard to stand out in the playhouse, you know, like everything stood out in the playhouse. So you could sort of feel real right at home, no matter who you are or what you were thinking or anything. Tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like, um, where you grew up and um, what what your school years were, were like. Were you uncomfortable in school? Did you do well in school? Were you picked on? Well, I grew up in an orphanage and... Um, oh, stop. Oh, okay. Um, no, you didn't. No, I didn't. Oh, no, that was my fantasy character. Sorry. Um, I uh, I grew up in upstate New York, Oneonta, New York, uh, until we moved in uh, fourth, when I was in fourth, in between third and fourth grade, uh, we moved, which was like a huge relief to me because Mrs. Lake that I had in third grade was really mean to me and scared scared the hell out of me as far as math goes. Like I still to this day, if I got to add or subtract anything, I almost go into a coma. <laughs> so uh, we we moved. So I had an incredible upbringing in upstate New York, um, which included uh, the New York State Teachers College is in Oneonta, and there was a um, a laboratory school that my sister and I went to, and we had junior kindergarten and senior kindergarten, which I think was an incredible confidence booster for, like, a little kid. You started at four in junior kindergarten, and by the time you were five, you were already a senior at something. So you could all you could always be like, oh, those little junior kids and, you know, <laughs> junior kindergarten, which was very cool to not have to wait till, like, you know, in, you didn't have to wait till get, to get to sixth grade to be, like, the big, you know big cheese you you got to do that at uh, five and um we lived in a really small town where there was uh, lots of nature and animals and uh, we had a little creek with a with a uh, crab apple tree across the street i'm gonna burst into tears in a second um <laughs> it was uh, it was really like a very story storybook kind of upbringing and then we moved to florida and uh Moving to Florida was, like, incredible. I thought we moved to Hawaii. I thought we were in the tropics or something. And my mother uh, took us to go get back-to-school clothes. And I I bought all these beachcomber outfits. <laughs> so I showed, up for, I showed up for the first day of school in fourth grade in Florida with, like, clam digger pants on and these nautical shirts and, like, like a total freak. And the kids at school were like... 
what are you supposed to be? And the thing that was funny about it in hindsight is like, normally, I'm in that kind of situation, I think the kids would probably, you, you, you would probably go like, oh, oh, sorry, you know, I didn't know what it was. But me, I was totally like, don't you get it? You know, I'm a beachcomber. What's wrong with you guys? And instead, like the next day, I like put out another variation of the same outfit, and put it on and got back to school and was like, you know, these kids are going to come around or they're not, whatever. But uh, I'm not changing. Was this your theatrical impulse expressing itself? I think it was, yeah, at a very early, early stage. Paul Rubens speaking to Terry Gross in 2004. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. And we'll also hear from two of the cast members of Pee-wee's Playhouse, Lawrence Fishburne and Esapatha Merkerson. And I'll offer some viewing recommendations for TV shows, new and old, to watch during the ongoing Actors and Writers strike. I'm David B. and Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's continue our tribute to Paul Rubens, the comic actor who died of cancer Sunday at age 70. Later in his career, Rubens appeared sporadically in films, playing the Penguin's father in the movie Batman Returns, a hairdresser drug dealer in the film Blow, and a vampire in the movie version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. On TV, he played a temp on Murphy Brown, and guest starred on Ally McBeal, Pushing Daisies, 30 Rock, and, most recently, played another vampire on What We Do in the Shadows. He's best known, though, for his movie and TV portrayals of his infantile alter ego, Pee-wee Herman. When we left off with Terry's 2004 conversation with Paul Rubens, he was talking about his family's move to Florida when he was in the fourth grade. So when you moved to Sarasota, which you said was the winter headquarters for Ringling Brothers Circus, did you meet any circus people? Oh, I met lots of circus people. I mean... For one thing, you could see the circus people coming down the street, you know, like the lady with the bright red hair and the wooden shoes, you know, would be obviously a circus person. I mean, you could just tell that they were very show business people in a very small town, a conservative small town. So you could tell who they were. We rented a little house the first year we moved to Sarasota 
and we used to hear these explosions all the time. And uh, we never could hear, figure out what they were. And one day, a couple weeks after we moved, our whole family was walking. T- we took a walk one night after dinner, and we heard this explosion, and we looked in between these two homes. We saw somebody flying through the air in between these two homes. <laughs> and it turned out that it was the Zucchini family, and they were the family with the giant silver cannon, and they were shooting each other out of the cannon in the backyard. That's um, so and, and in fact, years later, uh, when I made my circus movie, we went back to Sarasota and uh, and recreated that cannon for for Big Top Pee Wee. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Don't did, you love? Did that you want to be in the circus after seeing this? I did. You know, I actually thought that if uh, I've been asked, like, what would have happened if you weren't successful as Pee Wee Herman? What would you have done? And I really thought I was headed for a career in the circus. As as the pinheaded guy. No, the um <laughs> the unfunny guy. The guy who uh I don't know, I, I knew how to walk a tightrope, I could do trapeze. Could you really walk uh, a tightrope? Oh yeah. How'd you learn that? Why would I make that up, Terry? I, I don't know. Um I went to circus camp when I was young. Really? Mm-hmm. I swear. Like, I started out, I had a balance beam act. My parents showed up to circus camp when we were putting on the show, and I had on, like, a little Speedo bathing suit, and uh, I'd get up on the balance beam with a blindfold on and, like, set these, like, rings on fire and do this insane, completely insane act. I'd, like, look, I pulled the blindfold out, off and looked at my parents, and they were both sitting up in the bleachers with their mouths open, like... <laughs> What have we created? You know, like totally. I think that was probably an early tip-off to them that uh, wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna be an architect. <laughs> so, were you inhibited or extroverted as a kid? One or the other, or something in between. Um, you know, uh, honestly, I I think I was probably a little of each. I was sort of skitzy when I was like a kid. I would be like very introverted and in, you know, up in my room by myself. And then I would be like the life of the party, you know, like, uh, gathering all the kids around to like, we had a little stage in our basement that my dad built me once he, once he realized he was raising a little, uh, (laughs) monster, uh, actor. Um, so the kids in the neighborhood would come over and try to figure out like what was the teeniest part they could give me so they could use the stage. So, we would do like these murder mysteries where like the opening of the show would be me getting pushed off stage into a vat of acid. And then I would be like, <laughs> you know, my part would be over. And then all the older kids would like do the show. What, what TV shows did you watch as a kid? Uh, you know, I, I was part of an early study on uh, the effects of television on children when I was going to that school in upstate New York I mentioned. I remember... Being in first or second grade and having some scientists come into our class to ask us questions about, like, what shows we liked. And uh, my f- all the rest of the kids were like, Mickey Mouse Club and uh, Howdy Doody. And my favorite show was I Love Lucy. And so I got, like, selected out of the whole class. I had to go in, you know, leave the office, uh, leave the school, leave the classroom and go t- to an office. And... um Listen, listen to a bunch of scientists like go like, well, why? What was it about uh, the I Love Lucy show that uh, you know, that attracts you? And who do you like better, Lucy or Desi or Ethel or Fred? And 
you know, I was like in second grade. I didn't know any. I, I just thought like, well, I like the show just because I like the show. Um, that's a long way to answer. I didn't even answer your question. I watched, um, in addition to I Love Lucy, I when I was really young, I watched, the, I loved the Mickey Mouse Club. I loved Ca- Captain Kangaroo and I loved Howdy Doody. I was even on the Howdy Doody show. My mother drove me and my sister to New York and we were on the Howdy Doody show. In the peanut gallery? Mm-hmm. Somebody <laughs> knows the Howdy Doody show. Good. <laughs> Impressive. What was it like to be inside rather than watch, watching it on the TV? Very confusing. I remember my sister was so freaked out. She burst into tears right before the show, and she had to be, like, put in an isolation booth. She didn't make it. <laughs> she didn't make it on the air. But um, I did. I was like, oh, after this drive, you got to be kidding. Try to ax me from the show. Forget it. <laughs> I was right up in there. But the thing that was weird about it was, like, you couldn't see Howdy Doody. You couldn't see anything except, like, all the lights and cameras. And, I mean, it was just... It was really weird and kind of semi-disappointing. Why was it disappointing? Oh, because you couldn't see. Yeah, just because I didn't realize that there were lights and cameras and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something interesting. Like from that experience, I now kind of when I meet little kids, you know, out and about like for like we did the DVD signing the other day here in Manhattan and uh, a thousand fans showed up. And uh, I spoke to lots and lots of people, including some kids who would, you know, be just sort of staring at me. And I know enough now to say, like, I don't look like myself, do I? You know, and and I look bigger, don't I? And that kind of stuff. Because, you know, when you're a kid, like, it didn't occur to me that everything was real life-size. You know, I thought Buffalo Bob was, like, you know, the size of somebody who could fit inside the TV. You were on The Gong Show before the creation of Pee Wee Herman. And it was a kind of vaudeville type of act. I, I don't think I used to watch the Gong Show, but I don't remember your act. Can you tell us something about the act and about where where, where it got you? Did it did, did you get anything by virtue of having been on the Gong Show? I did a whole bunch of uh, different acts on the Gong Show, and I think of those times very fondly. I I, I was proud to be on the Gong Show. Uh, a woman uh, named Charlotte McGinnis. Um, who was I went to Boston University for a year before I went to California Institute of the Arts and uh I was in the acting school at BU and um when I I left after a year and but I kept in touch with a core group of people and um someone who came in the year after I left was this girl who I I then met 3 or 4 years later when all the people graduated from BU and they all came out to California and uh she had just been on the gong show and I met her and the first thing she said to me was like, do you have any interest in being on the gong show? I'm looking for a partner to do something on the gong show. And so um, that was kind of me going, okay, I'll try comedy. I mean, I had done comedy, but I hadn't really been focusing on it. I was much more of a serious actor in the James Dean kind of school. And uh, That's funny. I, I mean, because your image is so not that right now. <laughs> Well, I had a different image and a different image of myself at that time. Mm-hmm. And so um, she had said, you know, you can you, you can join the union after you've been on the gong show more than one time. The second time you join the union, which is what she was trying to do, and you get paid. Once you, once you join the union, you get paid for the performance. So I was on the gong show about 15 times. And she and I did, we, we had an act called The Hilarious Betty and Eddie. 
and uh, we did that on the Gong Show. We won. We won five hundred dollars, and then we they asked us to come back and do it on the nighttime version, which meant I was automatically going to join the union and get paid more money, uh, or get paid, and we won again on the nighttime show. And uh, Artie Johnson said uh, was one of the judges from Laugh-In, and he said, uh, "What are their names? What are their names again?" And Chuck Barris said, "Betty and Eddie," and he said, "Well, Betty and Eddie, we're going to hear from them in the future." And I literally ran out of the studio and called my parents. I was so excited about it. You know, Artie Johnson recognized us. <laughs> and uh, being part of, of this duo act and, and coming up with material for the gong show then led me into the Groundlings, which was an imp- improvisational group which had a, a, a real bent towards uh, writing and character creation and it was pretty early in my career where I realized, like, no one's going to do this for me. You know, like, that I needed to write, that I needed to create my own vehicle and create material. And, you know, if you're waiting around, you know, you you might spend some of that time coming up with some ideas and putting them on a piece of paper. Paul Rubens, thank you so much for talking with us. Terry, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I had a lot of fun. Paul Rubens speaking to Terry Gross in 2004. He died Sunday of cancer at age 70. After a break, we visit briefly with two actors who played in Pee Wee's Playhouse. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Homes.com. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? These are all things parents ask when they home shop. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On NPR's Line. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We conclude our tribute to Paul Rubens and Pee Wee's Playhouse with two actors who got early career roles on that show. One of them was Lawrence Fishburne, later one of the stars of the Matrix movies. But back in the Pee-wee days, he was still billing himself as Larry. Terry spoke with him in 1993. Here he is as Cowboy Curtis. Hey! Cowboy Curtis is coming, Pee-wee! Cowboy Curtis is coming! Cowboy Curtis! Yippee! Howdy, partner! Howdy! Boy, after a long day out on the range, I tell you, this playhouse sure does look good. (laughs) Hey, little doggy! (laughs) Hey, Cowboy Curtis, did you just come from church? No, 
Then why are your boots so holy? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they do look a mite poorly, don't they, Pee Wee? You know, I sure do wish I had a new pair of boots. Wish? Did somebody say wish? Cowboy Curtis did, Jombie. He needs a new pair of boots. Would it be all right if I gave him my wish? Sure it would, Pee Wee. But you know, you only get one wish a day. Are you sure you want to? Yes, I'm sure. Doing something for someone else will make me feel good. <laughs> All right, then. One pair of cowboy boots coming up. What size? Uh, size 12, double E. Boy, big feet. Well, you know what they say. No, what? But big feet, big boots. <laughs> You were a regular on Pee-wee's Playhouse. You betcha. You were cow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you were Cowboy Curtis. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <You had>, Ooh-wee. <laughs> and you had a great animated lasso. Yes. Uh, Magic lasso. Yeah. How'd you get the part uh, with Pee-wee? Uh, I met Pee-wee in L.A. Um, back in the early 80s. <laughs> and... Uh, he and I became friends, and I was doing Gardens of Stone, and I got this call. He said, I need a black cowboy. So I said, uh, no problem, you know, and I saddled up and rode on in. <laughs> kind of where it's at. Was it fun to work on the show? It was wonderful. I it really I love that show. I mean, it was the first, you know, television show for children that had live people on it for a long time. Lawrence Fishburne speaking to Terry Gross in 1993. Another actor who got an early break on Pee-wee's Playhouse was Esapatha Merkerson, who later starred as Lieutenant Anita Van Buren on NBC's Law & Order for 17 seasons. She spoke with Terry in 2006 about playing Reba, the neighborhood mail carrier on the Playhouse. It was her first TV role. How did you get the part on Law & Order? Well, Dick says it was because his kids were huge fans of Pee-wee's Playhouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, 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 Dick Wolf, the creator of Law and Order, knew you because his kids were big fans his of Pee-wee's kids, Playhouse. Yeah. So, um, now on Pee-wee, you played Reba the Mail Lady. Yeah. And um, in fact, why don't we hear a short clip of you on Pee-wee's Playhouse? Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> yes. And and this is a scene. You did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> Pee-wee has um, made a wish. Um, and the wish is that uh, Reba the Mail Lady will come to the playhouse and mail his letter. And John B. the Genie has granted Pee-wee's wish, and you show up at the playhouse a little baffled, and you're in your nightgown. And here's the scene. Hey, Reba! Pee-wee? How's it going? What are you doing in my house? I'm not in your house. You're in the playhouse. <laughs> the playhouse... How did I get here? Uh-oh. Jombie, did you put a wish on me? He made me do it. You see, I have this letter, and I wish that you were here to mail it for me. Why didn't you just take it down to the corner and put it in the mailbox? <laughs> well, uh, as long as you're here, would you mind mailing this letter for me, please, Reba? Kiwi. I would do just about anything for you, but today is my only day off. All right, I'll mail the letter myself. Thank you. Wait, Reba. Reba, wait, wait, wait. 
And that's my guest, Asapetha Murkison, in a scene from Pee Wee's Playhouse, and she was playing Reba the Mail Lady. You seem to be the only person in, in, on, on Pee Wee's show who, who is from, like, the real world as opposed to the playhouse world. <laughs> Yours. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, and I think it was like that in real life, too. <laughs> What do you mean? What a fun! That was fun to do. It was a fun show to do. I love that show. Yeah, and you know, it was my first TV gig, and I I used to ask them to after the first year. The first year we filmed here in New York, and then subsequent shows were filmed in L.A. But I used to ask them to bring me out a day early because I'm telling you, Terry, I'd get on set, and there would be something else to feast your eyes on. It was it was probably the most fun I've ever had on a set. Esapetha Merkerson, speaking with Terry Gross in 2006. Paul Rubens died Sunday at age 70. You can find episodes and entire seasons of Pee-wee's Playhouse on Prime Video. Well, we're out of time. I sure had a lot of fun. And I'll see you all real soon. Until then, everybody be good! <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I have some recommendations for TV shows to seek out during the current strike. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. It's now been three months since members of the Writers Guild of America went on strike in Hollywood on May 2nd, with the Screen Actors Guild joining them July 14th. That combined work stoppage has affected TV viewing already and significantly. No new late-night talk shows, several shows closed down in mid-production, and the fall broadcast season in total disarray, populated mostly by reality and game shows. The Emmy Awards, scheduled for September 18th, have just been postponed, the first time that's happened since 2001 in the wake of 9-11. But there's still some excellent television to watch as the strike drags on, if you know where and when to look. The longer the strike continues, the more the TV networks and streaming services will be shifting and delaying their planned schedules. No one is eager to launch new shows when the actors won't promote them, or schedule expensive productions from their inventory when they don't know how soon they'll be able to resume filming new ones. But in August, a few completed series are indeed arriving on schedule. The Showtime series Billions, for example, returns later this month for its seventh and final season. On Hulu, the delightful Only Murders in the Building returns next week for its third season, with Meryl Streep added to the cast. 
And this week, the Apple TV Plus series Physical, starring Rose Byrne, returns for its third season, and it too has a prominent new guest star, Zoe Deschanel, former star of Fox's New Girl sitcom. You also can watch for shows that are rolling out their episodes this summer on a weekly basis. The FX miniseries Justified City Primeval, which is great, presents new installments every Tuesday this month. And Star Trek Strange New Worlds, on Paramount+, Plus, is concluding its second season by serving up some very wild, inventive episodes. Last week, it did a crossover episode with another Star Trek spin-off series, Star Trek Lower Decks, which was tricky because Lower Decks is a cartoon. And this week, Strange New Worlds rips a page from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer playbook and finds a way to do a musical episode, where characters burst uncontrollably into song. In Buffy, the cause was a demon's magic spell. On Strange New Worlds, it happens when the starship Enterprise encounters something called an improbability field, and the crew members start singing instead of talking beginning with the usually somber Vulcan, Spock, played by Ethan Peck. Winston Uhura, are you packed in the comms? Aye, sir. I need a full status report, all stations. Apologies. Reporting from engineering first, sir. Mr. Spock? The intermix chamber and containment field are stable. I'll get to the war core and assess its state when I'm able. Why? Where's that music coming from? Not from anywhere on the ship. Apologies, the most confounding thing I appear to be singing. I have sick bay for you, sir. Most unusual, so peculiar. This prolonged strike period also is an opportunity to catch up on terrific series you've missed or want to revisit. Netflix is the place to see all of Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, and Black Mirror three of the best TV series made in this century. Disney Plus has an excellent inventory of old series, plus the fabulously filmed version of the musical Hamilton. Apple TV Plus has all three seasons of Ted Lasso. And Hulu is a goldmine. Its inventory includes such classic, never-fail comedies as The Mary Tyler Moore Show and The Bob Newhart Show and even such rarely available TV dramas as Sane Elsewhere, the 80s series that still makes me smile with anticipation whenever I hear its instrumental theme song. But Hulu isn't just an oldie station. You can find all the seasons of Fargo there, and the original Justified series. And a still fresh series, The Bear, that dropped its second season on Hulu in June, and instantly has become my new favorite TV show. It stars Jeremy Allen White from the Showtime series Shameless as a talented chef. As he works to launch a new restaurant, the TV series The Bear has only two speeds. There's Fifth Gear, where all is frenetic insanity, and there's First Gear, where things slow down and scenes are shot in long, single takes. In one such scene, with music playing in the background, White's Carmen repairs a dining table with fellow chef Sidney, played by Iowa Debery, while the two of them talk about food. You still love to cook, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Best part of my day, like 10 minutes ago, yeah. I made that an omelet. Yeah. I love taking care of people. Yeah, it is. What was an omelet? Bursum. And uh, I put chives and potato chips on top. Yeah? Oh, yeah. What kind of potato chips? Sour cream and onion. Oh, Yeah, type with the ridges. Oh, I bet that was fire. That was delicious. That's good. Oh, that's good. And that reminds me, TV serves as comfort food, too. Don't forget about old Columbo episodes on Peacock or The Sopranos on Max. Or, to stick with the comfort food metaphor and return to the omelet idea from the bear, how about going to Prime Video and paying to watch old episodes of Julia Child as the French chef? I have, and there's something about them that's delicious as well as genuinely instructive. You can tell exactly the heat of the pan by looking at the butter foam. As you see, it's still foaming. But it's when the foam begins to subside, then it's time to make the omelet. But you want to make, just be absolutely sure the butter is very hot, because if it isn't, it's going to, your omelet's going to stick to the pan. I know it's an old show from the 70s. But sometimes, especially during strike times, there's nothing quite so tasty as leftovers. On Monday's show, Jason Moran is at the piano to play music that shows how he's drawn from early jazz, hip-hop, and the avant-garde. His latest album is his take on the music of James Reese Europe, the composer and musician who led the Harlem Hellfighters Regiment Band in World War I. Europe had a short but remarkable life, as we'll hear. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shurrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Tina Callaghan. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David Biancula. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.